You know, I got to um, start off with a, a lyric from one of my favorite rappers, Shylin, when he says, I got to say this, God is gracious. This, this just not a doctrinal statement, but my heartfelt proclamation. And it's from a song called Mercy and Grace. And uh, I love that, that verse because for so long, mercy and grace, it was a doctrine to me. It was just something that, you know, you learn and that you can, like, recite and make yourself look pretty smart. But over the last two or three years, the Lord has really humbled me and, uh, and just put me in places where I had to call out on his mercy, that I, that I really needed his grace. Um, just me being up here. Uh, I don't know, many of you may not have been here, but probably about a year and a half ago, I came up here to preach on Genesis 24. And uh, I was going through a really rough time in my life. And, uh, and so by the time I got up here, it was after a week of not really sleeping, not really eating, um, just all type of anxieties and worries. And I just had all type of things in my life. And so by the time I got here, I just shut down. The body shut down, the mind shut down. And for maybe 14 minutes, you know, I'm shooting for 15 minutes at least this time. Um, I just stood here with really nothing to do, nothing to really offer. And uh, I walked off stage after tagging my man Russ in. And uh, I was really broken, and I was humbled. But, you know, it's in those places where you, you truly are, you, you just come face to face with the Lord and his mercy. And so, okay, I don't know what's up with this pulpit, but it seemed like every preacher that gets up here gets to breaking up. But you come face to face with his mercy, and it just... It's a beautiful thing. And so I'm just a vessel of mercy. I just want to teach you what I have learned over the years of walking with the Lord and, you know, and just, um, do, just doing this study um, in Proverbs. Over the last few weeks or actually few months, we've been going through the book of Proverbs, learning how to live a skillful life. We've been doing this from um, a thematic type of way where we've just been taking themes out of the book. So we done did um, everything from honor, greed to generosity, anger, uh, biblical manhood, biblical womanhood. Um, and so and we're just continuing now to mercy. And so I encourage you, if you haven't heard any of the other sermons, go ahead, go to iTunes because we're big time now. Um, you can look us up. <laughs> MacGav Community Church, or you can go to our website. Amen? Amen. All right. So, we wanna... so today we're going to be talking about mercy. And um, you want to get the first slide? Yeah. Oh, there we go. All right. I'm getting used to looking here and looking. This was kind of like my biggest fear today was this, this screen. But um, I first want to talk about mercy as expressed in culture. You know, as I kind of sat back, I was thinking like, man, like, how do we see mercy in society? Um, how do men tendently, um, I guess, express mercy? 
And so I just came up with a few things. First of all, fickle. You know, and when I, I mean man's mercy is fickle, um, that sometimes it just doesn't have a rhyme or reason. In fact, um, a lot of times it's preference driven. You know, you look at our popular culture and when you see uh, a celebrity or athlete or a politician fall from grace, depending on what side you're on, whether you're on team Democrat or team Republican, it pretty much determines on if you're going to be gracious or merciful. So if your candidate fall into adultery, then you're going to be preaching, hey, mercy. But if not, you're saying what? Off with his head. And so it has no rhyme or reason, whether it's celebrity or whether it's, um, like I said, just any type of popular um, figure. And oftentimes, what, um, the way that they can win mercy from society is to really please us with either a new hit song or win a tournament right, or push our own personal political agenda. So man's mercy, I would say, could be fickle. And you know what? I'm totally guilty of this. Over the last week, I know you probably heard of Paula Dean, right? And uh, she said some racial things. And what I realized is that I can be merciless when you uh, go against my racial sensibilities. You see, I can forgive all type of things, but there's a few things in my heart that the Lord revealed to me that I'm not quick to give compassion to. In fact, I I was listening and I mean, I was laughing at the Facebook postings of her, you know, mocking her, just laughing along with the rest of culture until she was being interviewed by Matt Lauer and she was just kind of like begging for forgiveness and had the nerve to basically kind of quote a scripture where she was just like, if you never committed a sin, be the first one to throw a rock. And I'm kind of like, why did she have to say that? Because that convicted me to the core. I realized that I was nothing but a Pharisee with a rock ready to beam her in the head, right? No compassion, no mercy. And so I had to repent of that. And so man's mercy can be fickle. Also, man, mercy could be self-centered. It could be used as a mechanism to relieve yourself of guilt. You know, we all hate Christmas sometimes and you walk into Target or you walk into some store and you see the Salvation Army person and you're just like really upset because they begin to violate your conscience because you don't want to give, but then you feel guilty if you don't give, you know? And I mean, I mean, it's a real thing. And so sometimes we'll see someone suffering, someone need of help, and we actually do our act of compassion, but it's very self-centered and it's about us. Man's mercy can be work righteous. The best apologetic you can have is to understand that every religion outside of Christianity is works-based. I mean, Mormonism, Muslims, Catholics, you name it, they're all work-based systems. And so you don't necessarily always need to know like who founded Mormonism and what they believe on this and what they believe on this. You just know that they're work-based. And so man has figured out a way in his mind to earn God's favor by doing acts of mercy. 
And here's another one. Man's mercy can be merciless. Abortion. The founder of Planned Parenthood once said the most compassionate thing that a family can do is kill their unborn child. Because, I mean, you're struggling, you're poor. You know, you can't help this child. You can't fend for this child. This child is going to suffer. The rest of your family is going to suffer. So have compassion. Kill your baby. Or they even use it as far as rape and abortion. And I, I just really hate this with a passion because what they do is they use the argument of if a woman is raped and they try to like manipulate your conscience and they say, well, I mean, why would you force her to have this baby? And that's the, just the deceitfulness and the wickedness of man's mind and his heart which was one of uh, the sermons we did, the deceitfulness of the heart, to be able to twist something that, like having a baby that is so beautiful and to be able to take it and twist it into the most heinous, wickedest thing ever done in human society, worse than slavery, worse than the Holocaust, to attack children in their mother's womb, And then they cry passion, compassion, and mercy. The the, the biblical Christian thing to do is to have mercy on the mother, to have mercy on the baby, and to have justice on the offender. And and before I move on, because I'm a post-aborted father of two, and so I know the pain of being hoodwinked by the enemy. And so I don't want you to carry any guilt. I want you to know that this sermon is for you. If you're struggling, if even me saying the word abortion has brought up some pain, I don't want you to shut out, all right? I want you to listen to this sermon and know that there's a God and he's good and he want to reconcile you. He want to reconcile you to him and he want to restore you. Prideful. I saved this one for last. Man is created in the image of God, so he has the ability to be moral. Man can be just, compassionate, and merciful. And so when tragedy hit, the instinct to help and relieve misery for many is a natural good desire. I, like you, have benefited from mercy from both Christians and non-Christians. And so mercy can bring the best out of man, right? It seems that way, right? Every time there's a tragedy, you know, they're just like, wow, look at man, right? And so mercy can bring the best out of man. For example, 9-11. When I hear about all the good stories of people helping people, the monetary help, the stories of valor, I can't help but to have a, I mean, a little pride of being American you know, you hear that song where, be, where it's like, I'm proud to be an American, you know? <laughs> you know? Y'all know? You see how I went back from country to hip-hop? That's because we multicultural here. <laughs> I mean, even the fact that prayer in the public square was invited and people flooded to the church. I thought it was about to be revival, the next big awakening. 
Not so. You see, mercy can also bring out the worst in man. The saying is that there is no atheist in a foxhole. So when tragedy hit, man doesn't have a problem with yelling, God, have mercy on us. He has no problem with yelling for comfort and justice. Man becomes humble, but then something happens. He takes his eyes off of heaven and begin to look around him. And what do he begin to see? He began to see aid workers, firemen, policemen, government aid. And he began to say, look at us. I am an American. Better yet, I am a New Yorker. Look how good we are. Look how compassionate we are. And so I was wondering, how is it that we can get such a twisted understanding of mercy, right? Next slide. You see, all these acts of mercy point to men. However, mercy was intended to point all men to God. Scripture says it's the goodness of God that brings men to repentance, But man takes the goodness of God and accredits it to himself. It's the ultimate hell-bound folly. Next slide. And so I was trying to figure out what's the issue here. And so I go to Merriam-Webster definition, right? This is the current day definition. It says compassion or forbearance shown especially to an offender or to one's subject, to one's power also. Lenient or compassionate treatment, begged for mercy. That sounds good, right? I wouldn't have a problem with that. Imprisonment rather than death imposed as a penalty for first-degree murder. A blessing that is an act of divine favor or compassion. Go back to the stay right there. And is well, it's that first. And as I was looking at this, what struck me was a blessing that is an act of divine favor or compassion. What does that mean? Divine favor. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you a definition. So first of all, keep that definition in your mind. And I want to give you a definition for mercy. And it's straight from the year 1828. It's also from Webster's Dictionary. Um, Noah Webster uh, is the author. And uh, his name is synonymous with dictionaries. And actually, what's really cool is he was a Christian. And uh, he was the father of what they call him, the father of American Christian education. You see, Noah Webster, I'm going to hold it. First of all, I want you to look at his definition. First of all, you're going to see what a difference over 100 years make. So he starts off with the benevolence, mildness, or tenderness of heart which dispose a person to overlook injuries, 
or to treat an offender better than he deserves, the disposition that tempers justice and induces an injured person to forgive trespasses and injuries and to forbear punishment or inflict less than law or justice will warrant. I know this long, but it got a good ending. In this sense, there is perhaps no word in our language precisely synonymous with mercy, that which comes nearest uh, to it is grace. It implies benevolence, tenderness, mildness, pity or compassion and clemency, but exercised only towards offenders. Mercy is a distinguishing, check this out, mercy is a distinguishing attribute of the supreme being. The Lord is long-suffering and great of great mercy, forgiving the iniquity and the transgressions and by no means clearing the guilty. Number 14. Numbers 14. What stood out to you there? Divine, divine favor. Supreme being. You see, we, I take you back to Proverbs. What was it? Um, one seven. Is that the next slide? I think I might. Yeah. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, of course, Noah Webster didn't do the current definition, all right? But he was a man that feared the Lord, right? And so he got the definition right. He had this brilliant, I mean, you could preach that definition. And the beautiful thing about it is that it led, it, it led us to mercy's ultimate source, and that is the supreme being God. Mr. Webster understood mercy because he understood divine truth. You see, when you don't understand, when you, when, when you don't fear the Lord, you could take those things that are good, that God, that those good things, and you could twist it to be the most evil thing in the world. And, and, and with mercy, we see that what man did was, because he didn't fear the Lord, he basically took mercy and made it just a simple virtue, right? A simple virtue that he can use at his own discretion. He made the rules. He made the definitions. And once again, it all pointed to his glory. Now, Brothers Webster's definition is a good definition, but it's very broad. So I want to give you a more manageable definition. And this definition is from Millard Erickson, uh, from his systematic theology. And this is how he defines mercy. All right. All right, I'll go ahead and read the definition. All right. The definition is that God's mercy, listen up, this is tender hearted, loving compassion for his people 
It is his tenderness of heart toward the needy. And to support this definition, I want to take you to Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passes before him and proclaims. Now, this is the Lord talking to his servant Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The first thing you need to understand about mercy is to understand the source, the supreme being God, and to understand that God is good. Amen? In fact, goodness is his essential attribute. And one way that man experiences the goodness of God is through his mercy. In this passage, you have four ways man experiences God's mercy. First, merciful, God, compassion and pitying, well, compassion and pitying concern for the needy and miserable. All right? Second, and we're going to run through this because we got a lot to cover. Gracious, his unmerited favor, kindness. Third, slow to anger. God withholding judgment and continuing to offer salvation over a long period of time. And then abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, can you go back to the last slide? Or so now you see merciful, gracious, slow to anger. Now these are the things that all men, all men experience, right? We all, no matter whether we are God's kids, chosen people, his children, or if we are unbelievers, you know, we all experience his mercy. You know, we talk about 9-11 or we talk about any other tragedy. And do you know God had mercy on both the believers and the unbelievers that through um, medics and doctors, he was caring, he was caring for people. It was his mind that gave people the ability to do medicine, right? And so when man was, you know, giving God glory by using his gifts, he, once again, was uh, treating unbelievers and treating believers. The difference is that the believer got up and praised the Lord, and the unbeliever spit in his face and continued to rebel against him. You see, God cares for his people as well as all creation. He got, he got a love for all creation, but he got a special love for his people. And you see it, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness is what theologians call covenantal language. All right, it's language that's, that's basically communicating to us about the promise of, promises of God. Uh, steadfast love represents, that word steadfast love represents the faithful covenant love of God to his people. 
Faithfulness is a standard Old Testament term for covenant keeping. And so when the pair, when the two are paired together, as they so often are in the Old Testament, they should communicate to us God's love and commitment to his people and his faithfulness to fulfilling all the gracious promises made to Abraham and to his seeds and to his seed and to us now, the church. Amen. And so basically what this is keeping is that God is good. He loves you. He committed to you and he's faithful to you, right? Even though he had to be merciful, gracious, and slow to anger because we could be a wayward people. But with this covenantal language, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, these things are promised to us, right? He's going to care for us. He's our father, not our judge. And that's the beautiful thing of, that, of this passage. Now, the promises that God made was the, the promises of the Old Testament was of a coming Savior. And so all the laws, all the ceremonies, all the types and the shadows were pointing to a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and a Prince of Peace. Right? That God is faithful. He keeps his promises. And when we go to the New Testament and we read in John 1, 14 and 17, It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he comes after me, ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so now what I will propose that grace and truth, as you see in this passage of scripture, is the New Testament parallel to steadfast love and faithfulness, where God's promises was realized in Christ. And now we see that Christ is the ultimate ultimate expression of God's mercy. We go on to read in Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. You see, God didn't need us at creation And he didn't need us as salvation. It was his mercy. It was his grace, his patience, his slowing to anger, his faithfulness, his son. And now we receive his Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The mercy of God. So the main purpose of mercy is to lead man or lead men to the cross of Christ. So with, that under, so with an understanding of the source and the purpose of mercy, let us go back to the book of Proverbs to see how we can apply this knowledge to skillful living. See how I made it to the book of Proverbs. I know they're probably like, okay, when is he going to get to Proverbs? I made it. 
So what we're going to talk about in the book of Proverbs, we're going to talk about um, three group of people, the merciful, the merciless, and the miserable. So we're going to talk about who we should be, who we shouldn't be, and sometimes who we be. I know that's bad English, but sometimes who we be. First of all, we're going to start with the, uh, the merciful. Proverbs 3, 4. 3 and 4. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on a tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of man, in the sight of God and man. And so God has now shown himself to be a loving, faithful God by sending his son to pay the penalty for our transgressions so that we may have forgiveness for sins. Now, as an act of worship, what we do is we turn around and we begin to love the Lord with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our souls. We love him with all our being, right? And we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And so the same goodness that God has shown us, we now begin to model that goodness to the world. Um, and um, Luke six thirty six it says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. And so we should live lives full of compassion, full of kindness, full of patience. And, and as we live to honor the Lord, right, the next part of this verse says, we find favor with God and we find favor with men. We find favor with God because as we are giving ourselves to him, you know, we are living inside his will. And that's the best place to be, amen, to be inside the will of God. And while you are in the will of God and, and you're serving him, if you're giving him all the glory and you worship him, then he's just going to bless, bless your socks off. That's what my man Eloy just loved to say, man. The Lord just bless his socks off. Um, and so what he do is he begins to grow us in spiritual maturity. He grows us in love. He grows us in joy. He grows us in peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, right? So that he could make, so he could just use us in, in, in just mighty ways for his kingdom. Now, the way, now we get favor from God, but also we find favor and good success in the sight of good in the sight of man. Now we don't go around trying to please men, right? We're not man pleasers. But what we do is as we honor the Lord and we love our neighbor, everybody like hanging with the good, kind, passionate person, right? And the one thing that I love about this body is that, um, you know, I've really been seeing over the few years I've been here is that we, we've been just Man, favor of God is, as you just see people fighting and, and striving for holiness and, and just loving the Lord and out here just going all out for the Lord, right? And, and so any spiritual maturity that we experience, any newfound joy, that is all of the Lord. Amen? I know I'm getting comfortable now. The Baptist coming out of me. When you say amen after every statement. But also we're beginning to see that we're finding favor with men, you know, all around this neighborhood. You know, you got people that blesses our church, both believers and non-believers, you know, Spring Hill Camp. 
you know, um, they came down here and they, they set up a wonderful day camp to bless our children. Um, we had a brother now looking for people to, um, um, he want to hire men from his body and from the community to work with him. And here's the sweet part about that. You know, even if you have a felony, you know, if we recommend you, he'll give you an opportunity, right? That's God's favor on this body. And then do you also know that people are, 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 are testifying to the goodness and to the mercy that they experience in this body? You know, there's a brother who, who's been homeless and, you know, he had, I mean, he's been blessed with, blessed by many of you. You have helped him with money, clothes, you fed him, you gave him little in and out jobs, right? And so one day this brother wind up getting arrested for attempted murder. It wasn't attempted murder. It was something like a very high degree of assault where he was facing felony charges. And, uh, but what happened was he, well, he didn't get off. They had the wrong guy. So after like three months, the first thing he do is he come to the hood. He comes to the 48214 and he's just visiting everybody. Now on the surface, you could easily say that, uh, you know, he's just looking for a handout. But then he did something that really struck me. He went to a brother that used to go to this church and he was just like, hey, you know, what's going on? Are you still at Metcalf? And the brother that used to go to this church started to speak ill of the church. And this, this dude who felt the mercy and the compassion of God poured out on him, you know what he did? At that moment, it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the handout. He testified to the goodness of the mercy that the church showed him. And he actually told that brother that he need to get his butt back here. You see, people are beginning to testify. The beautiful thing about it is that when you got a a ministry like like ours, where you got all these people in this one little pocket, this one little mercy pocket in the city, loving the Lord, uh, displaying the Lord's goodness. I mean, it begins to saturate the community and people get to talking, right? Right? And they begin to show you favor. And we don't just soak all that up to say, look at us. But we point them to God. Proverbs 14, 31. I need to speed up here. Um, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Um. When I was growing up, I used to believe that blacks were the most oppressed, victimized people group in the world. Now I realize it's not blacks, it's the poor. We live in a doggy dog world, and if you don't have resources, then you're at the mercy of society. And so what happened is the poor becomes the, the biggest target to be oppressed and victimized. They are often victims of political injustice, social neglect, poor education, and even other poor people. In the scripture, it says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. All 
men are created in the image of God. And when you oppress an image bearer or man, God takes it personal. A passage of scripture that illustrates this very vividly is Matthew 25, 41 and 46. It says, then he will say to those on his left, he's talking about judgment, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you, uh, I was hungry. You gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger. You did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also were answered saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in a prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do, do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In short, to oppress the poor is to attack the image of God. He takes it very, very personally. And if you spend a life hustling the poor, you will pay for it dearly. Proverbs, the next one, what are we on? Proverbs 21, 14, 21. Oh, you're right, I'm wrong. Uh, a man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. Go to uh, 14, 21. It says, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. You know, I want to give you a scripture that's kind of a, a good commentary to both those scriptures. It's from 1 John three seventeen. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes, closes his heart against him, how does God loves abide in him? So if you have it to give it and you don't give it, right, where's the love? Amen? How you treat the poor, we can tell if you are of God by how you love the poor. Whoever loves God will have mercy on the poor. As simple as that. We're going to go to the merciless now. Proverbs 14, 22. All right. Do they not go astray who devise evil? Those who devise, who devise good meet steadfast love and faithfulness. I want you to focus on one word, devise. In the first line, is used in a negative tense, which means plot. In the second line, it's used in a positive, which means, which, which makes it to mean plan. So in the first line, we are talking about premeditated wickedness. The second line, we're talking about premeditated goodness. The proverb gives us a, contra a contrast between the children of the devil and the children of God. 1 John 3.10 says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not 
of God, nor is he one who does not love his brother. A characteristic of the devil is he is, he is a schemer. He is a divisor. On the other hand, the children of God, we live lives of premeditated goodness. You see the difference there, right? You can either spend a life predetermined wickedness, and, and you see this so often. You know, who was that, Bernie Madoff? Even though he got over on rich people, you know, but that was premeditated to just rob people of their money, you know, or people who... Uh, you know, just sit down and, and devise schemes to hustle people. Premeditated. You know, what else is premeditated? I was thinking about uh, the movie Transformers. And one of the actors, uh, was Charlie LaBeouf or whatever, was doing an interview. And he said that uh, Michael Bay, that one of the things he did was, is that he, he intentionally um, placed women or configured women in a way that would entice young boys. This dude set out to corrupt the youth, the youth. Premeditated. It's wicked. And so watch out. You know, it, it made me mad. I wanted to see Transformers. But we can't be a part of that. We have to turn away from evil. We have to speak out against that nonsense. Protect our children. Amen? Premeditated goodness. Our God is a benevolent God, given of himself for the welfare of others. That's what it means when we say our God is benevolent. And so in Nate's uh, sermon that he taught us a couple of weeks ago, he said that God gives us a bunch of stuff to be used um, for our, for ours and others' eternal good. And so God gives us time. He gives us talents. He gives us treasures. And so what we do is we take all that and we predetermine that we're going to use it for the kingdom. Amen? And so when we're thinking about careers and we're thinking about uh, what's our next steps, we need to be thinking about, man, how can we bless the world? How can, we, how can I bless the world with this beautiful mathematically inclined brain that God gave me? How can I uh, bless the world with these beautiful hands that God gave me? How can I bless the world with these resources that God gave me? Predetermined goodness is the life of the Christian. Proverbs 19.11 Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it and it. Good sense makes one slow slow to anger. I gotta calm myself down up here. Whew. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it and it is his glory to overlook an offense. When I was thinking about my outline, you know. After I, I laid out my outline and Leon gave me the order to not change it because I could change an outline to like Saturday morning or Sunday morning. I, and I thought that another good outline could be just showing God's attributes throughout Proverbs. Because earlier we, when we talked about mercy, you know, we talk about as God's 
pity and his compassion. And we saw that with the way he wanted us to deal with the poor. Um, we saw the grace, the grace that he want us to extend to the poor. And now in Proverbs 19.11, we see that good sense makes one slow to anger, right? Remember that term? God is slow to anger. And so here's another attribute that we need to be modeling to the world. And it also goes on to say, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. And, and I know I grew up in the hood. <laughs> and so when somebody offended you, you retaliated. Right? That's just how we did. If you didn't, you were a punk. You know, meekness was not a good trait to have growing up on the east side of Detroit. But it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful trait to have now that I'm saved and redeemed on the east side of Detroit. The saints, we're going to look at this particular slow to anger thing. Slow to anger thing. I just, it's not a slow to anger thing. This slow to anger attribute of God. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Once again, God has forgiven us. Amen? Not much testimony need to be, not much commentary there. I'm going to keep on going for time's sake. And then also how we deal with our enemies. But I say to you who hear Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either, but love your enemies and do God and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. And when we deal with enemies, we must always remember that we too was once God's enemy. Romans 5.10 says, for if while we were sent, no, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled Shall we be saved by his life? Christ sacrificed his life to his enemies. And now he is calling us to model that same type of sacrifice to the world. You know, God gave his life. And so the least we can do is sacrifice our ego, right? Sacrifice our toes being stepped on. All right, well, that's the merciless. So we, we went through the merciful and we went through the merciless. Now we're going to get to the, the miserable. Proverbs thirty one twenty. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches her and reaches out her hands to the needy. Um, a cross-reference scripture is Deuteronomy 15, 11. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you shall, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. And so God is always making 
provision for the poor and the needy. And John Kitchen in his commentary, in his commentary on this verse says, her, her palm and extended hands holds not only a gift, but a signal that she gives more than her goods. She gives her time and attention, indeed her very self. Beautiful commentary. We are to give ourself. That's what our life is about. As Eric is always saying, we're, we're, our life is not about just getting stuff, right? It's about giving. It's about loving. That's what our God does to us. That's what we do to the world and worship to him. Now, what I want to do is I want to talk about Jesus' mercy ministry. First, I want to say that Jesus reached out to the outcast. Mark 1, 4 through 42. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, kneeling to him and said, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. You know, a little history on the leopard. You know, they, they, they wasn't the cool peeps to hang around. I mean, they were, they, they were outcasts. They were, they were treated as unclean. In fact, um, it, you know, the, 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 the Jews felt like it, was a, it wasn't a physical issue, that it was a spiritual issue. You know, that their leprosy was because of their, their sin. That's why they wouldn't send the leper to the, the physician. They would send him to the priest. And so when Jesus, first of all, when he healed him um, from his leprosy, he was showing them that, you know, it, it had very big uh, spiritual significance, right? That he spiritually can make us clean. But also I want you to see that Jesus... He could have just said, be healed, but he touched them, right? And that was, a, that was a no-no. They didn't do that. And when I think about the scripture, I think about how we need to, we need to reach out to those, uh, the poor and to the needy who people just basically just look at them and consider them as dim people, you know? And in this country, we are, we are pre-programmed to run away from them people. We chase the American dream so that if you live in the hood, you can get away from them people. Or if you live in the hood, you're pre-programmed to want to make something of yourself so you can get away from them people. But here's the problem. And this is not to say you, you, it's a sin to live in the suburbs or it's a sin, you know, if you, you know, I'm not trying to say that, not trying to get it into a, a missional church battle versus the, the, the traditional church. But all I'm saying, if the body of Christ leaves the city, who's left? If we take our time and our talents and our treasures and we all hit the suburbs, who is here to, to tend to them people, to reach out and touch the outcasts? 
you know, I lived in the city all my life. And I'm going to tell you, I, I grew up on Kenny Street in the middle of the crack war. I mean, I saw families just break down. I seen men who, they weren't bad men. They were good men, but they made that fatal mistake of trying crack. And they wind up just going from respectable men in the community to derelicts. I just see the, the, most, the most heinous thing. I saw beauty queens go turn into to prostitutes. I seen a mother lose her son. To, uh, he got murdered, lost another son because he had to flee the city. And then as we were in the field playing dodgeball, they got to shooting and her other daughter got shot in the leg. And I didn't realize, and I didn't, didn't understand it then, but when I came to Christ and I realized that there was a message of hope inside the church, I really was upset. And I was bitter at the church because how could they just let us out in the hood? And how could they just let us die? How could they just let us be miserable? How could they just let us suffer without giving us hope? How could they just come from the suburbs, go into the church, drive past us, and not think anything of us? And now in that neighborhood, basically the neighborhood is wiped out. But you know what's standing? Those two churches. And I pray for them churches. I pray for them. Jesus reached out to the outcasts. Um, oh, Matthew 9, 35 and 36. Is that next? Jesus ministered to the people's spiritual and physical condition. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed, helpless, like sheep without a pastor. So first, Jesus healed them physically from their physical suffering. And then another thing he did was he began to preach and minister to them. And, and you know, one of the things is I was thinking that um, right now the world is looking for hope. And what they do is they go to Dr. Phil, they go to Oprah or the Oprah, they go to Tyler Perry. You know, one of the reasons I think Tyler Perry movies are so big in the African-American community is because he gives hope, a false hope, a distorted hope, but it's hope nonetheless. And, and that's what people is looking for. And they don't turn it to the church because we, we, we get our hope. And we get our counsel from this antiquated old book, right? And the world just think the Bible is something where you can just get a, a few cool motivation, inspirational scriptures. I could do all things through Christ that strengthens me. I could win the Super Bowl, you know? But when it comes to depression, when it comes to dealing with loneliness, when it comes to dealing with bitterness, dealing with anxiety, Dealing with loss, they don't think we, we got it. And so what we got to do is we got to minister and we got to preach. 
We got to be digging in our words. We got to be able to minister and, and, and minister uh, mercy and compassion to people to go into the scriptures and say, look, the scripture speaks of your hurt. It speaks of your depression. We got to just take them from thinking that this book is just this old book and to realize that there's life in its pages. But that's going to cost us some, some blood, sweat, and tears as we go into the book and we labor. Amen? Jesus preached repentance and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Question. How loud is repentance in your gospel presentation? When you are sharing your faith, how do you deal with sin? You know, I know that we, we love talking about the fruits of salvation. We love talking about grace and love. I, I mean, I love it. But how loud and how thorough are we when it comes to preaching repentance? The reason I ask is because it seems like in the American church culture, that repentance is either being removed from the gospel or is being reduced. Like the culture is falling into this tolerant thing that's going on, being politically correct. And so to talk about sin and to talk about repentance, that means we got to confront people. And and we don't want to do that because then we're going to be called judgmental, and we're going to be called legalism. Now, I agree with them. We aren't to judge people. We aren't to judge the world. But we are to let the world know that judgment is coming. Amen? Judgment is coming. Because there's going to be a day when God's mercy His compassion, his long-suffering for the unbelievers are going to come to an end. There's going to be a day where God is going to be merciless. And so when we're preaching, and we're preaching John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? We need to preach that, but we also need to preach that for whoever um, should not believe in him should perish, Right? We need to be preaching that. And then we need to be pressing even further in the chapter 3 of John. And, and remember that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so that poor suffering mother, right, the wrath of God remains on her. That brother that grew up without a father, but he's still rebelling against God. You know, we want to minister to their suffering, but we also need to minister to their soul, right? We need to minister to their soul. We need to be able to preach to them and preach law and to preach grace and to preach repentance and to preach forgiveness so that they will call out for mercy. Lord, what must we do to be saved? If you're just preaching 
the fruits of salvation or just love and grace, then you're not walking in grace and truth. You're not being a faithful minister of the gospel. And the last one. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Why do we hide our sins? Pride, right? We want to look better than what we really are. Or maybe embarrassment, you know, you, you, you feel embarrassed about a particular sin struggle. Or you know, I, or sometimes you might have had victory and you shouted it from the rooftop. You confessed your sins, right? And then, and then you found mercy and compassion, but then you fell into that sin again. And now you feel stupid. There's just all type of ways that, all type of reasons why we conceal our, conceal our sins. But the scripture says you won't prosper. Psalms 32, three through five, it says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave my iniquity of my sin. (laughs) This is the steadfast love. God delights in mercy. He's just waiting to just shower you with his abundant mercy. He's just waiting for you to confess that sin so he could just show you, look, my grace is sufficient. I still love you. I still got your back. My hand may be heavy on you for a minute because you're tripping, but you are my child. I love you. And then 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful. We saw that from the beginning of scripture to the end of scripture, from the beginning of the sermon to the end of the sermon. It started with steadfast love and faithfulness. Then it turned into grace and truth. And now we're ending if we confess our sins. He is faithful. You serve a good God. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, you are, you are good. And Lord, I hear people say that so many times. But Lord God, I pray that you would just convict us to the, just to the depths of our heart that you are good. Lord, I just pray, Lord God, if there's anybody in here who haven't experienced your saving mercy, Lord God, Lord God, I pray that you will convict them, that you will save somebody, somebody in this church tonight. If someone is struggling, they're hiding sin, Lord God, I pray that you will continue to keep your heavy hand on them until they confess. And then, Lord, oh, please shower us with your abundant mercy. Amen.